Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And welcome to parts one and two together, our first proper episode of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. 17 hours ago, we watched parts one and two of the new season of Twin Peaks and we're going to be discussing it extensively over the next however long it takes to talk about everything that we're thinking about. So obviously there's going to be big spoilers for parts one and two. We haven't watched parts three and four yet, so this is just going to be one and two. Any speculation that may change when we watch parts three and four, we'll talk about next time. So for the time being, if you've watched parts one and two but haven't watched parts three and four, don't worry, there's not going to be any talk about things you haven't seen yet. Yeah, and we've kept off social media for the last day just to make sure we don't really know what other people are thinking as well. Um, it's just been really fun to watch the thing, absorb it, let it wash over us for the last day and now have the chance to talk about all of our thoughts about it. If you do want to listen to our Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes, you can uh, subscribe to us via our main podcast feed, which is called Time for Cakes and Ale. And please do follow us on Twitter at TFCAA, uh, where we'd love to kind of get in touch and hear about uh, your theories and thoughts about the new season as well. But uh, yeah, I think we should crack on with our first thoughts about the new season. So what's your immediate reaction? <laughs> I I think no one could have predicted what was in those opening two episodes. They are the most astounding two hours of television I've seen in a very, very long time, irrespective of being Twin Peaks. I think it was it was surprising. It was uh, emotional. It was terrifying. It was scary. It was at times funny. It was it felt, you know, just like Philip Jeffrey says, you know, it, it felt like we're living in a dream watching this. It's the strangest feeling watching it. It's so unusual. It has a strange ethereal quality to it. It's still Twin Peaks, but it's also very different and it's gone off in a very brave, ambitious and bold new direction. It was the strangest thing. It's like going back to your hometown where you grew up, but you haven't seen it for 25 years and everything that you remember as being there is still there, but it's all changed in strange and sometimes imperceptible ways. Everything that you expect to be there from your memory is there, but it can't be the same because everything has moved on and people have moved on and the show has moved on. It's a remarkable thing, but it's it's a very strange experience. I think it's fair to say that they really have done something which no one was expecting. And I think it is going to set viewers off on a very strange path uh, for the next few weeks. Before we actually get to the nitty gritty of discussing everything that's gone on in terms of the events of this new season, maybe we should take a step back and talk a little bit about the overall structure of Twin Peaks The Return. Structurally, it's very different from before. I think that's probably the biggest change from the old Twin Peaks to the new one, is that it's no longer wedded to this episodic format. When the old Twin Peaks was almost sort of parodying some of the rather soapy TV dramas that were on at the time and the cliffhanger nature that you would get at the end of every episode and 
the way they were structured, that's all gone. And it's something that's not only rooted in the kind of TV that we have now, but beyond that, it's shrugged off the shackles of having to have an episodic format at all. Uh, he's talked about this 18-hour movie that's just been cut up into chunks, and it really felt that way. It felt like you were watching the opening 15 minutes of a film stretched out over two hours. The introduction of all the characters, the places, the the sense of it just settling down into something. At the end of part two, when you're in the bar with Shelley and James, and it, it feels like you're just starting to relax down into something familiar and it finishes and the credits roll <laughs> and that's it it's incredibly brave thing to do it's unlike anything that's on tv at the moment i think that just like last time it's going to change the way people think about making television i think also given that we're watching it in the uk as well so we were watching it at 2 a.m in the morning <laughs> This is exactly the kind of show you need to watch at 2am in the morning. <laughs> we were exhausted. Um, I mean, I certainly really wanted to get some rest before watching it in case I would nod off during the episode. I was really tired in the run up to it. But the minute it started, I was fully alert. And not only was I completely engaged for the two hours, but when it ended, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I think that's really the hallmark of something very very special yeah i spent all day with elements of it running around in my mind thinking about other things that it made me think of music artwork i couldn't shake some of the images um a few of the images in particular that we'll probably talk about when we go through the the events that happened but i, I couldn't get it out of my head all day and we've just watched it again for the second time this evening and we're recording now, so a word of warning, we haven't had that much sleep. So this is a very instinctive reaction. Yes, it will seem like a stream of consciousness, much like the new season itself. It's something that you experience and let it, I think like I said earlier, just wash over you. But it's unclear exactly what you've actually seen and where it's going. It's just more of an experience and a mood and a series of feelings that it produces inside of you uh, which is why I think what we're going to be saying we'll do our best to articulate but we apologize if it gets a bit too rambly <laughs> and I remember that one thing that was said at some of the press junkets earlier in the year was that this was the pure heroine version of David Lynch and having watched these first two episodes I completely agree but I would go on to add that this is also the pure heroine version of Mark Frost as well I think for those of you who have read uh, the secret history of Twin Peaks, Mark Frost really has an idea about the mythology that he wants to place in the Twin Peaks universe. And I think that married with the visuals of David Lynch and his ways of structuring the story really show both creators at the height of their powers. And visually, it's very striking the way a lot of the shots are framed. It's so different to the way a lot of very generic TV drama is shot these days. The number of very still, very wide shots where you can see m not just multiple people, but almost their whole bodies in frame. 
it's so different to the way a lot of TV is shot now, where you only really see the whole of someone if there's some kind of action going on. It's notable how much close-up and constant camera switching there is in a lot of other shows. And here, the stillness of it and the way events are just able to play out almost in a single shot sometimes without moving around, without constantly distracting the viewer with different angles, different shots, people shifting about. It's very distinctive and I think potentially some new audience might find it jarring, but it's also quite hypnotic. Yes, I think the pace of it is very slowed down. It's very deliberate. And I think there's a sense of it going at its own pace, uh, which was something that was very similar in the original Twin Peaks. It just moves in its own way. And they've kept that aspect of it. But these two episodes really showed how much uh, they were going to take their time with this story. And although unmistakably Twin Peaks, I think there were strong elements of the visual stylings that you get in some of David Lynch's other movies. So when I was watching it, there were elements that really reminded me of films like uh, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, Lost Highway, and quite a strong influence from Eraserhead as well. I'm not saying that this is a mishmash of all of his different films, but I really get the sense that he's got a huge palette of skills to work with. And he's doing everything he can to make this a very refreshed version of the Twin Peaks universe, which actually seems more familiar in light of his more recent films as well. And I think in terms of the story, it might not make much sense now. It might not make much sense for a long time. We're going to be speculating about what some of it might mean, but... It's all very intentional. Everything that's in there is intentional. And it's wonderful having the sense that I know that not everything is going to be explained. And that's fine. If things get explained, that's fine. If they don't, that's also fine. I'm not expecting it to be another 16 hours of answers that wrap everything up. In fact, that would be kind of disappointing. I think most importantly, it has that incompleteness, which is very characteristic of some of David Lynch's work. But it still does this wonderful thing of being very unsettling, being able to arouse emotions and feelings in the viewer with very simple or seemingly simple uh, visual setups. And also, I think it creates these wonderful moods which no one else is able to make on screen uh, with such ease. So we were thinking about how we would actually begin to discuss what happens in part one and part two of Twin Peaks The Return. There's so much in there and it is setting up so much new storyline and what we thought was one way to do it was to discuss these episodes in light of the geography of the story. So what we think might be a good idea would be to 
take each strand of the story which takes place in a different location and kind of go through each of those distinct aspects obviously talk about bits where they intertwine and try and use that as a way to frame some of our discussion as well yes some of the locations have a lot taking place some have very little taking place but it seems like at least a way of approaching it one of many ways of approaching it i'm sure so what should we start with i think we could start right at the very beginning 25 years ago so it opens with the footage from the very final episode of season two where laura says to dale I'll see you again in 25 years, and then strikes that famous pose with her hands, and it stops. And then we get the new opening credits, which takes some of the concepts of the original opening credits, the moving through the trees, the waterfall, and then blends into these beautiful red curtains that are swooshing around like flames, almost. I think you see some of the chevron floor as well. Mm. Uh, oh, it I, made my eyes go funny. <laughs> it's across the floor. I think what's interesting in these new credits compared to the old ones is that there's no listing of cast members in it. Mm. Now, obviously, we don't know what happens later on in other episodes, but it's interesting that by not having the cast listed, you have no idea who's going to be in the episode which I think keeps back some interesting surprises for what's going to play out on an episode-by-episode basis. Yeah, it's also interesting that they reuse some of the shots from the school. So you have that shot of moving through an empty school corridor, the shot of Laura Palmer's homecoming queen photo in the trophy cabinet, uh, the, the, the shot of the anonymous girl running across the quad, um, which were all from the pilot episode. And the way they've brought all of these things back in makes it seem that Laura is once again going to be a very important element of Twin Peaks. So the most remarkable thing at the very start, so the first new footage, is this wonderful black and white prologue, which involves the character that we know from the original series as the giant talking to Cooper in what looks like the Red Room or a version of one of those rooms in one of the lodges. What's notable, actually, is that the giant is talking backwards, which seems to be a property of people who inhabit these rooms. But initially, although it seems like they're sitting opposite each other, having this conversation in person, you never see them both in the same shot. And what transpires is that it looks like the giant is actually communicating with Cooper who is in another location and indeed he says that Cooper is far away. Yes and in the end credits of part two where it has the credits for both parts one and part two the actor who played the giant is listed there but his character is not listed as the giant it's question mark question mark question mark question mark so is it really the giant? I think that's really odd because I remember in the original series, the actors were uh, credited where appropriate as, for example, the little man from another place, uh, the giant, even Killer Bob. So all these ethereal spirit characters 
were credited. And it's odd that given that the giant is seemingly a returning character, why he's not given credit as the giant is a little bit strange and I presume is going to be important in the future. Yeah, because he behaves in the way that you expect the giant behaves because he brings Cooper three clues, just like he did last time. So you've got the first clue, which is 430. Yeah. Richard and Linda, who I think aren't characters that we've met yet. And two birds with one stone, which is one of those very cryptic things that he says. I think if you're taking these to be symbolic of what happened in the original series not only have you got these three clues but remember that they came in at the very beginning of season two Mm. and they were addressed and wrapped up within a few episodes they weren't the long-running mysteries that would take place so i would expect that these new clues will be resolved in potentially the first half of the new season and there's a gramophone from which these strange scratching noises seem to be coming from and the giant says to Cooper listen to the sounds and then he says something about them being in our house now and I don't know who our house is supposed to be is the giant actually elsewhere is he in the White Lodge for example is it a sign that something is spreading or something is getting in um I think it entirely depends on where the giant is because he doesn't seem to be in the same place as Cooper. It would actually be quite interesting if this is the way that they're going to portray the White Lodge. I don't know if that's the case, but if the White Lodge is p- portrayed in black and white in the future and the red and the red room is symbolic of the Black Lodge, um, I can see some potentially quite interesting visuals coming in there. And then we start to get scenes that are set not just in Twin Peaks, but all over the place. There are scenes in Twin Peaks and The Lodge, but there's also things happening in New York, in Las Vegas, and in Buckhorn, South Dakota. So, should we start with New York? We should start with New York, and maybe end in the Twin Peaks section. Yeah, okay, let's start with New York. So we've got this young guy sitting on a sofa in what looks like the top of a building in New York. And there's a glass box which is partly inside the building, part outside the building in this weird eye-shaped hole in the middle. And he's got all these cameras set up, all of them watching the box, and he's just sitting there watching it, changing the memory cards on the cameras. At first we don't know who he is, what's going on. I didn't know if it was his apartment, his cameras, his weird experiment that was happening. A woman comes up to visit him, he goes outside, the security guard is there. You start to get a feeling that, okay, this isn't his apartment, he's just working there and he's not allowed to sneak this woman, whoever it is, in with him, even though she's brought him coffee. She behaves really suspiciously, she's trying to look at the keypad number that he's typing in to get back into the room and he just goes back inside and he sits down and he carries on watching the glass box right so we skip forward and the next time we see her it's basically the same setup but this time uh this girl who comes and brings the coffee she's waiting outside i think she buzzes the door the guy gets up and he goes to have a look he sees her and he notices that the security guard is gone and he seems quite perturbed by this 
and it's unclear exactly what is going on and certainly it's a bit strange because I think in the previous scene when we've seen the girl I think she's called Tracy she wants to get into the room and she does that weird thing where she looks to see whether she can read what's on the keypad when he's trying to get in and it's unclear if she's interested in him or she's actually been sent maybe to spy on him to try and get information on what's going on in this room in this experiment with security guard not there the guy agrees to let her come in and this is when we first learn a few things about what's actually going on in this room so we know that he's replacing somebody who used to work there he seems to be a student and what's happening is he's being paid to sit there and make a note of anything that happens in that box which is why there are all these cameras set up and he makes reference to the fact that there's like an anonymous billionaire or somebody who's mm. funding this whole thing and i think that's kind of unusual i don't know who that is um i don't know if it's somebody who we've seen before who will become apparent or if it's a completely new character and his role is really just to document what goes on in there. They very quickly abandon their coffee and start making out on the sofa. And then suddenly we see this weird figure appearing in the box. It's almost kind of alien looking. It's, it's like a, a kind of weird grey body with a, a, a sort of alien shaped head. Um, I, I don't know if that means anything, but... It starts smashing its way out of the box and then attacks them in what seems to be some kind of strange, blurry frenzy. Yeah, so it's. I think what happens is the box, it starts to go dark mm. first. And then you see this black and white figure. I don't know if it's dancing. Now, that could be important because obviously the little man from another place, he likes his dancing as well. And it could be dancing or it's kind of like shuffling around, but it's kind of moving towards the front of the box. And then when it bursts out it's completely unclear in the blur of things that happened what's going on but certainly when i saw it it did look like it was like a classical gray type alien and its head i mean it did seem to have a humanoid body mm. you could see it had um, a humanoid head it seemed to have very large big black eyes i mean like those classic pictures of aliens and things the first thing that it made me think about was some of the mythology that's covered in The Secret History of Twin Peaks. Now, if you've read that, there's a lot of UFO mythology that starts fitting in in the first third of that book. And I was wondering, is this going to be the new season? Is this going to be some kind of weird X-Files crossover where it turns out that aliens are involved? Now, I don't think that's the case, but that thing did look a bit strange. And I think it's also a nice indicator that we shouldn't just consider this Lynch's baby. This is Lynch and Frost together. I think Frost puts a lot of the mythology into these episodes. And then the only other time we end up in New York in parts one and two is much later on involving Cooper, which I think maybe we should talk about when yeah. we're talking about the Black Lodge yeah. because it, it fits in to that whole sequence. I think what's odd is what this glass box actually is. Um, now, I think we will discuss it later, but I think it does seem to come across it's some portal to some kind of other place or dimension. It's unclear what it's actually doing, but the fact that this thing appears in it uh, makes it seem like it is a gateway in some way. And the fact that something comes out of it physically also implies that it's a way to reach another world or even metaphysical realm in some way. And I think what's interesting is that in Twin Peaks the original series, there was all this talk about gateways and portals. And I do wonder if the mythology that's starting to be built is something to do with 
almost like a hellmouth, hellmouth mm. popping up all over the place. My initial response to seeing this thing was, is this one portal of many that may link to this uh, metaphysical world where maybe the lodges are, etc.? Is there one that's been found in the middle of New York in the same way that there was one in the circle of sycamore trees in uh, Ghostwood Forest? Yeah, and have they built this glass box around it in an attempt to contain whatever might try and come out of it or to attempt to harness it in some way? There were an awful lot of electrics going on underneath the box that were doing something. It wasn't just a box. And that's actually a really good point because... Wyndham Earl was always obsessed with this idea of harnessing the power of the Black Lodge. That's what I think that's what Dale refers to it and even Major Briggs does in the original series. I do wonder if this is the first hint that that kind of storyline is around. So maybe people are aware of some extra dimensional realm. They're aware that it has some power and maybe these are the attempts which are being funded privately by billionaires, for example, to try and access this strange power as well i do wonder if that's going to be a ongoing theme in the new season yeah could the electrical gump that is underneath that even be generating the opening yeah so where there wasn't one before or maybe there was the potential for one it can actually create one i do think that there's something odd about what triggers this thing to appear in the first instance why does it suddenly turn black and this strange creature appears and knowing this is a lynch work as well i do wonder if in some way the portal is even opened or or triggered by the couple starting to have sex maybe it's like something which is triggered in some weird way i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if there's all levels of mystery to how this whole system works that might unfurl but that was an old thing that happened you know why would you be sitting there for ages nothing happens and then within two minutes all of a sudden it turns black and a weird creature appears inside and of course, what that creature might be becomes a little bit clearer, maybe, as we move to other aspects of the story. And one other thing, just about the sort of production design and these scenes in the apartment in New York, is that they really reminded me of some of the industrial design aspects that you see in Inland Empire. Some of the corridors, the rooms, the way it's all set up. It was strange that that was the, that was the vibe I got from that. And it was interesting just because when I moved to other bits of the episode, primarily the ones in Buckhorn, those bits reminded me a lot more in terms of how they looked um, of uh, Mulholland Drive. And of course, Mulholland Drive was photographed by Peter Deming, who's doing uh, the new Twin Peaks as well. So I suppose that's a good place to move on to the story points which are set in Buckhorn, South Dakota, or thereabouts. And... It basically opens with this wonderful nighttime shot uh, of car headlights illuminating the road as it's speeding down um, a lane in the in you know in the dark, and it really evokes the feeling of Lost Highway when you see uh, the shots of the of the road surface as cars are zooming by at the beginning and end of the film. This music is playing and. What an entrance! I had no idea this was going to happen. I mean, I had, you know, I don't, I didn't know how they were going to play this whole aspect of the storyline, but it's incredible when this car pulls up and outsteps. I don't know what we're going to call him. Is he bad Cooper, evil <laughs> Cooper, Doppelcoop, Mr. C, Mr. C? It's incredible. Bad Cooper. Bad Cooper. Let's go with bad Cooper and good Cooper. Yeah, although we'll change that. 
all the time. Yeah. So. <laughs> On a side note, how much do you reckon Mercedes paid for that little advert? <laughs> when he pulled right up to the camera. That was a very cunning bit of product placement there. Yeah. But hey, if it gets the show made. And also at the end when uh, uh, when uh, James ordered his uh, ice cold Peronis. Yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> could have been, been Coronas. <laughs> The only thing we really got to see of the Doppel Cooper. We've already stopped calling him Bad Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> so, within the lodge, the Doppel Cooper from the final episode of season two, where he's dressed exactly like Cooper, but with the doppelganger eyes, like the others do, and races him out of the lodge, basically. The only thing we really saw of him was laughing and generally behaving in a very freaky manner while getting out of the lodge. Yeah, and then when he's uh, found by Harry and Doc Haywood, he obviously has the famous bit, you know, I need to brush my teeth, gets up, and you see him looking in the mirror, you know he's Bob, but his demeanour really isn't played up too much. You know he's possessed, but he still looks very much like the Agent Cooper we know. And that's how we left him. And that's kind of how I felt he might still be in a weird kind of way. That's how I remember Bad Cooper. He looked the same, but he was just evil. He was possessed by Bob. Yeah. I'd spent a lot of time wondering what will have become of Cooper in 25 years. Could he have just gone back to the FBI and pretended to be Cooper while going around getting up to all sorts of terrible stuff in his spare time? What what was he going to do? Was he going to have turned out to have killed everybody in the room with him at the Great North? There, there was just no way for anyone to know. And it would have stayed that way until we now get to see what bad Cooper looks like now. Yeah, that bit where the car pulls up, the door opens, and you see his, his, like his boots on the ground, and it kind of pans up and you see him and you're thinking, you know what, I didn't know in advance, but that is basically what evil Cooper looks like. Yeah. I mean, he had like the leather jacket, this kind of snakeskin shirt. Um, he has this tremendous hair that's a bit like, it's kind of a cross between David Carradine and Michael Madsen. <laughs> it's not slicked back, but it's kind of long and a bit lank. And he just has this spray tan that makes him look kind of orange, which is very unusual. It also de-ages him quite a lot as well. Yeah. Compared to uh, the modern day good coop who's still in the lodge. Yeah, he's almost the anti-coop in every way they could devise someone to be an anti-coop. The way that he dresses, the way he behaves. It's wonderfully done. I had no idea he was going to be playing that kind of character in this. But it works really well. And I think it's very jarring to have your first modern incarnation of Cooper being this evil Cooper that we see here. Yeah, and of course... When we'd previously seen Bob, I suppose, inhabiting Leland, in many respects, he just carried on Leland's normal life. Mm. And to people from outside that family, nothing seemed to be wrong. Nothing seemed to be unusual. So what is it about this that means that bad Cooper has turned out to be the opposite of good Cooper in every way? Why has he gone off... What has he been doing for the last 25 years? Uh, he seems to know a lot of uh, criminal groups who he goes to visit and recruits to 
do his bidding, I suppose. What's he been doing? How did he afford that Mercedes? <laughs> What's he been up to? That's the big question of this opening episode. How did he get that Mercedes? <laughs> he seems to be visiting this, I guess, crime family who are in this hut in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, and the first thing he does is just go and knock out the guy who's meant to be guarding the door. Not once, but twice. Yeah. It was two fantastic takedowns. We barely having to do anything at all. Um, he goes to see this guy, Otis, who knows him. And he wants to know if Bueller is there, who is the woman from the trailer that everyone was wondering, who is this woman? Because she wasn't in the cast list. People were theorising it might have been other people in heavy makeup. I think, uh, I think everyone in the cast list who wasn't Carl McLaughlin uh, was considered to maybe be playing this woman. I think she <laughs> showed up in this episode. <laughs> but she's real. She, she is real. And she seems to be in charge of whatever it is that is going on there. There's a couple of other guys who just sit in the corner saying nothing other than adding a strange atmosphere to what's going on. She reminds me a lot of Mags Bennett in uh, yeah. in Justified, that kind of little crime family. Yeah, the, the matriarch of the, the crime family in a, in a very kind of rural setting who, who generally seems exasperated with the quality of the criminals that she's getting into <laughs> her gang. Like she said, it's a world full of truck drivers. <laughs> you just can't get the criminal help these days. At first, I, you know, when I saw it, it did make me think, you know, are these people actually human or are they like lodge spirits mm. inhabiting people as well? It's a very weird setting. And the fact that this was the first time we'd seen the uh, possessed evil Cooper turning up and he was on such familiar terms with these people. My initial response was, is this the equivalent of like the convenience store where we see all the lodge spirits coming together? Hmm. I don't think that is now, but when I first saw it, there was something weird about this. All these strange characters who are all grouped together in this little hut, like you say. And, you know, it just seemed a little bit weird how they were all interacting, how they were talking, etc. But I suppose, I mean, now we know what happens later on. I mean, I think they are all human. They are just all criminals and part of some little mini criminal enterprise where Cooper must interact with them in order to make use of some of their skills and talents once in a while. Yeah, so he's there to pick up Ray and Daria yep. for purposes unknown. <laughs> uh, and they leave with him and head off into the night. Yes, just to expand upon what Evil Cooper has been doing for a while, it seems that for the last 25 years, he hasn't really been keeping a completely low profile. Um, he's clearly been living off the grid and getting up to some kind of schemes and nefarious deeds now and again. But it's unclear what he's been doing, why he's been doing it, and how he's been managing to achieve all these things. Clearly, this is suggesting that he's kind of subcontracting out, you know, local criminals, uh, to, you know, to do certain things. He hasn't been sending Christmas cards, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's odd. I mean, he's clearly well known to this family led by uh, Bueller and uh, Otis, he's kind of feared by them as well. Yeah. I don't know if they know that there's something supernatural about him or if he's just generally a fairly terrifying human being who they just think would probably kill them. I think that was one of the things that made me wonder if these were initially lodge spirits in some kind of convenience store setup. I don't think that's the case, but it did seem a little bit weird. Certainly what's odd is if he is trying to be hidden from society in any way, it's strange that he still uses the name Cooper. 
in front yeah. of them. So if people are looking for him, it it's quite risky. You know, people are going to find out that there's a guy called Cooper running around if that's the guy who they're looking for. It's kind of cool when Otis, I think, refers to him as Mr. C. Mm. Um, but no one else does that. Again, afterwards, everyone just knows him as Cooper. So it's quite a bold move, you know, <laughs> to have taken on his identity, to be committing all these crimes and still be using his name. But maybe that's the kind of thing that Bob would do. Yeah. And to have apparently not got caught in 25 years. Yeah. So he must be quite good at it. But again, although it figures later on in the story, it's strange that, you know, it's clear people must be looking for him because it's referred to him being missing later on. We'll go into that. But he still has access to FBI databases. Although I don't know if, you know, there's any evidence that he's using somebody else's identity to log into those um, uh, portals on, you know, on computers. But he clearly still has access to the infrastructure he needs uh, to be uh, conducting the kind of investigations he wants to do as well. There's that scene in the diner where it's him, Ray, Daria and the other guy. Jack. Jack. Yeah. Who seems to get dispensed with fairly quickly. After a, a bit of a face smushing. Yeah. <laughs> and you find out that there's information that Bad Cooper wants, not needs, but wants, from someone who is a secretary to someone named Hastings, which we will come to. And for some reason, Ray is the only person who can get it from her. Then later on, they seem to be doing something to the secretary's car, which we can only assume is intended to kill her. I think or... he references, I think Cooper references uh, wiring the car. Yeah. I'm not sure if that means like wiring it to explode or it means wiring it in terms of setting up a or bug a bug to be able to listen into what's happening. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe a bug for location. I don't know what's going on. But he, like, I think uh, when he goes back to the motel to see Daria, he does say wiring, I think. But I'm not sure exactly what that meant in this context. Yeah, and we do know that he bugs people because he records the phone conversation between Daria and Ray that That's gives true. her away. So he's obviously spying on a lot of people. And it's in that conversation when he plays it back that we find out that she and Ray have been hired by someone to kill Cooper in the event that he's still there the next day when he's potentially meant to have been drawn back into the Black Lodge. Yeah, so in that same diner scene, uh, Ray says to the evil Cooper that Daria has told him that Evil Cooper is worried about something that's going to happen in the future. And it becomes apparent that the fear that Cooper might be experiencing is the fact that his 25 years might be up and he's about to be sucked back into the Black Lodge. And although it's alluded to in that scene, he directly says this later on when he's talking to, uh, to Daria. I think he says, you know, I'm about to go to a place called the Black Lodge but I'm not actually going to go. He's got his own plan to get out of being taken back. So like it's, you know, Bob is clearly on the loose and he likes it and he doesn't want to go back. And it's clearly there's a, a force, potentially a supernatural force, which we'll come to later, which is actually trying to get Bob back uh, into the Black Lodge. Yeah. And in that phone call that he records between Daria and Ray, Ray claims to have been arrested and is in prison, but we're not really sure mm. if he is. But then they mention Jeffries. Yeah, at that point, bells start ringing. <laughs> and Twin Peaks fans all over the world just simultaneously just start wetting themselves, probably. <laughs> it was this moment when you realise that the mythology is going to go deep here. 
I do wonder how this would have played out for people who are watching Twin Peaks for the first time and have never seen the previous episodes. Yeah. And certainly those who have never seen Fire Walk With Me. But it was a reference that suddenly rings lots of bells. Um, because obviously, I think the Jeffries they're referring to is the Philip Jeffries in Fire Walk With Me, played by David Bowie. Yeah, who is still presumably around in some capacity. What that capacity might be, we don't know. Or certainly, Evil Cooper thinks that he's around in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Dorian Ray, I mean, they could have been taking instructions from... Who knows who? Someone pretending to be Jeffries, someone using the name Jeffries. But just the name being around, it, it's like fireworks going off. It's very exciting. Yeah, so Cooper has like asked uh, Ray and Daria to help him on some mission. He needs this information from Hastings' secretary, which is going to come via Ray. But he soon learns that Ray and Daria have actually been uh, hired by um, somebody who may or may not be Jeffries or is related to Philip Jeffries to actually kill Cooper the next day if he doesn't actually return to the lodge. Yeah, and I wonder what would happen if he got killed. Would the doppelganger spirit end up back in the lodge? Would he just die? I don't know, because my presumption is that maybe if he's dead, it's easier for the lodge... Well, the lodge spirit would leave, because obviously when Leland dies, yeah, Bob is released. But whether Bob would then be able to inhabit somebody else, or whether... Bob would return to the lodge, I don't know. But that might mean that with the doppelcooper outside of the lodge, the good Dale, who's in the lodge, might be stuck there forever because he has no one who he can exchange with. Yeah. Yeah, so when Cooper realises that Daria has betrayed him and learns that Ray is being held, I think, in a federal prison, I think he's been accused of shuttling arms between state lines, which means... It's a federal crime, I think. Yeah, but C- Cooper seems unconvinced that that's the truth. Yeah, I do wonder if that implies that this is really an FBI plan. You know, you can just imagine that this is a way to use Jeffries to be coordinating some attack on Cooper. Maybe now that they've got him in the right place, they now want to take Ray off the board a little bit and have him secluded away somewhere. But yeah, Coop learns of this betrayal and he very violently kills Daria as well. I think that's the one really shocking thing about this, is to see the the evil and the violence in Doppelcooper is actually quite jarring. Because you're so because actually even the Cooper you see in the in the lodge is still quite serene and quite peaceful. Mm. In spite of what's going on around him with the events he's seeing. He's very rarely phased. But this is like the the evil, aggressive Bob style, which it's very hard to watch in somebody as hopeful and optimistic as as uh, Dale Cooper. Yeah, and then he gets up what looks like some kind of satcom FBI gear, and he has a phone call, a, a radio conversation, yeah. whatever the gear he was using, where he clearly thinks that he's talking with Jeffries, but actually not sure that it is I think David Bowie has such a distinctive accent <laughs> that uh, it's at least it's clear to the audience it's unlikely to be the David Bowie incarnation of uh, Philip Jeffries. Yeah, and he says something like, "I missed you in New York," and then Cooper says something like, "Are you still nowhere?" Which implies that is 
does Jeffries not exist in the physical world? Yeah, so uh, obviously in Fire Walk With Me, he he starts in that by appearing in Gordon Cole's office when he turns up at the FBI after being missing for two years. In The Missing Pieces, it implies that he was in um, Buenos Aires, I think. But he has this thing where he can appear and then he can then kind of pop in like an electrical puff of smoke almost and be transported or teleported to another part of the world or indeed to uh, the convenience store where he has clearly spent time with the lodge spirits as well. So this nowhere could mean that Bob knows that Jeffries is currently maybe orchestrating things from his otherworldly location, whether that means he's in another lodge or actually if he's just kind of popping around through time and space and has no sort of fixed location, we have no real idea. But I think critically what happens is the next thing that Jeffries says he knows about Cooper. Yeah, he says Jeffries or whoever it is that he's speaking to says he met with Major Briggs. And to be honest, that's the next moment when everyone who's watching this wets themselves (laughs) again. Because I think the implication is that it's referring to an event from the very end of the secret history of Twin Peaks. So in so I think it's no longer much of a spoiler now. Um, it's been out for so long. We are going to discuss all these things. Um, but the archivist who puts together the dossier, which is found by Tamara Preston, which forms the basis of the secret history of Twin Peaks, um, is actually Major Garland Briggs, who obviously was played by Don Davis, who is who passed away. He's no longer uh, in the show. But the last thing that happens in the secret history is there's reference to Briggs asking to meet with Cooper after he's returned from the woods at the end of the season two finale. And he meets with him, Cooper shows up, and when he leaves, I can't remember what the exact words are, but uh, Briggs makes reference to realising that there's something wrong with Cooper. He must realise that this is the evil Doppel Cooper, evil Cooper, which has emerged from the lodge after some experience. And he says that I think plans have to be put into place. He's off to the listening post alpha where he works to kind of put something in motion. And he ends with his mayday, mayday phrase. Um, So I think it's interesting that, well, two things. One, they're tying in the mythology of the secret history again here uh, to what's happening in the TV show. But also they are honouring the character of Briggs by having him potentially still being an important character by being like an Achilles heel in Cooper's story so far, the evil Cooper. Yeah, because Major Briggs always had a a connection of some kind to the White Lodge. There was that whole episode where he gets taken away and then re-emerges in some kind of um, 1920s aviation kit or what looked like it. And that dream that he has that he tells Bobby about, about the dream of being in the White Lodge. Yeah, his vision of hope and things, yeah. Yeah. So it, in some respects, Major Riggs has always been, I suppose, one of the pieces on the board that was on the side of good, even if he himself was not any kind of spirit from the White Lodge. It was always a counterpoint to some of the evil that was going on in the world. So even though the character can no longer really appear, it's really nice to still have his influence felt within that world. And again, going back to what's contained in the secret history of Twin Peaks, there's a strong link between Briggs and also uh, Gordon Cole as well. 
So this is where I'm starting to wonder if there's something going on between Cole realising that maybe Cooper has become one of his Blue Rose cases now and he has to try and work out you know, how to take evil Cooper off the board. They must know about these lodges. It's clear that the government does and that, you know, certainly through Project Blue Book, the Air Force has been leading this effort for a while. They must know that evil Cooper is around, but they don't know how to catch him. But they also know that they have to somehow get him back to the Black Lodge in order to release the good Cooper from within it as well. Yeah, so before he kills Daria, he reaches into his jacket pocket and he pulls out this playing card that what looks like an ace of spades that's been defaced so that the symbol in the middle of the card is the symbol that is in our cave that seems to symbolize the black lodge it's the symbol that's on the ring in fire walk with me and he asks her if she's ever seen it although the body of it is quite big isn't it it's not like yeah. the same scale so it's like it's usually like a diamond with the little wings coming out but this one has a much larger kind of smushy body and then smaller little arms coming out. Yeah, it's, it's like someone's drawn a circle around the whole of the big ace of spades in the middle of the card and just filled the whole thing in and then drawn the little horn-like things that come out of the top. And he, he seems very keen on knowing whether she knows what this is or if anyone has shown it to her or if anyone has ever given her any coordinates to something, which got us thinking about all those numbers that people are giving to yeah the four three zero and then later on i think there's a a two three five yeah yeah but the other thing this card really reminded me of at the time and this is a bit of a tangent but years ago i went to an art exhibition in london at the hayward gallery funnily enough it was called Walking in My Mind, Walking Through My Mind, something like that. And it, it was a big exhibition. I think there was about seven or eight different artists who were involved. And one of the artists whose work was exhibited was this artist named Keith Tyson. There was one particular painting that I kept walking back around to over and over and over again. So I was walking all the way through the exhibition space. I kept circling back around to the room that had this in. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. Afterwards, I ended up writing down the name. I tried to look it up, see where I could find it. And I, in all the years since I went to the exhibition, I've never shaken the image of this painting from my mind or the words that were written on it. Now it's called, So Then He Dealt the King of Owls. And the image, I'm going to put a link on the blog to this guy's website where you can find the image if you want to look at it. It's like a playing card. It's very dark brown. And it's like a king from a suit of cards, but the suit is a suit of owls. So you've got the K and then the kind of filled in shadow of an owl next to it. And in the centre of it is the image of this giant dark owl just staring out at you and the text that's written on it is so then he dealt the king of owls and instantly the game seemed pointless and I don't know what it was about this painting that I couldn't shake it from my mind ever since then and when I saw that playing card with the black lodge symbol put on it instead of the ace of whatever it was 
my mind instantly went to this as something that I've never been able to to quite shake the impression of and I started thinking about the concept of this as a game in which some of the people playing the game are beyond the board beyond the rules of the game and the more I thought about it so I've been thinking about this all day <laughs> it's been going around and around in my head all day the, the more I kept thinking about things that happened in the original series so when Windermill challenges Cooper to this deadly game of chess where every time Earl takes a piece he's going to kill somebody Cooper initially expects that he's going to play by the rules and that if he can stalemate him Windermill will be honourable enough in a warped sort of way to not kill people unless he can actually take pieces but as the game goes on Earl starts to move off the board. I think Cooper even refers to him as having gone off the board at some point when he takes a piece and kills someone outside the normal rules of the game and the game changes and the closer Windermill gets to actually getting his access to the Black Lodge the more he abandons the formalities of the game. I think at one point when he's incredibly excited and he's talking to Leo about something and he just knocks the chessboard over that he's been using to track the game with Cooper. And there's there's something about the idea of people as players in the game, but there are moves going on beyond the board and there are people who can play by a different set of rules. So when we rewatched Twin Peaks again on the run up to the new series, we've been watching one episode a night. And one thing that really struck me is Cooper is this incredibly kind of optimistic, hopeful character. And the first time he strikes me as being ever so slightly sinister is the episode where he's just been suspended from the FBI because of the frame job that Jean Renault is, is running. And he says he's not going to bother defending himself. And the other FBI guy, Roger's name is, I think, yeah. he says, oh, that doesn't reflect very well on you to, to not be offering up a defence. And Cooper says, he says, Roger, I know the moves I'm supposed to make and I know the board. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately and I've started to focus out beyond the edge of the board on a bigger game. And there's something not right about the way that he says it. There's something that creeps me out about the way he says that. And it, it keeps coming back to this idea of the game being bigger than what you can see. There's that scene where uh, Lucy and Andy are playing chess and they're arguing about what the knight is allowed to do and Andy thinks that the knight doesn't have to do the little hooky thing. And Pete, who is the chess guru, says to Andy exasperatedly, no, Andy, the knight does have to do the little hook thing. It's a privilege. The knight is the only piece that gets to make the little hook move. And I, I, I keep coming back to this idea again and again of games. The, the gaming imagery is embedded in Twin Peaks so much. The imagery of cards, you've got all the way through all the one-eyed jack stuff in the original series. Um, you've got Windermill and his uh, queens for the Mist Twin Peaks. Yeah. So yeah. Shelley and Donna and Audrey. Yeah, and he shows Cooper as the king as yeah. well, doesn't he, on one of the cards. Um, you've even got Hank Jennings and his dominoes yeah. 
um, the, the the creepy domino keyring that he has. There is something about the use of games in this. And I think, what is it that Cooper actually says in this new season? He says something like, the game is on? Or Yeah, when he realises that Daria has been hired by someone to kill him, he says something like, ah, there, there's a new game, or a new game is on, or something like that. He almost seemed excited by the prospect of there being now a challenger to him. And there's something else he says. Uh, when he kills Mrs. Hastings... Which we'll come to which, later. Which we'll yeah. come to. But he says something to her like, you followed human nature perfectly. And it's as if she was a piece in the game who moved in the way that the human pieces are supposed to move and did exactly what was expected. But there are there are other entities moving beyond the board who can move in ways that no one else can and who don't have to play by the same set of rules. There's there's something about this that I can't shake. And it all came back to that King of Owls painting that I just couldn't get out of my head today. I think what's also weird about that card, I don't know if it's that relevant, is the fact that that card has been scratched in some way. Yeah. It's weird, and I'm not sure why it would be kept like that, but it's got holes in it, it's been scratched out. Like, I wasn't sure if at one point it was used on a dartboard or something. But this card has been defaced quite heavily, and I don't know what the source of it is, but I have a feeling that this whole concept of this game being played could be important for the arc of this uh, season. And certainly the fact that it appears to show a kind of warped version of the Owl Cave symbol uh, must tie into that in some way. Right, so the next strand that's also taking place in Buckhorn, South Dakota, is what I think is probably going to form the predominant mystery element, at least of the opening episodes. Um, so what we have is uh, a crime that's being committed. There's uh, a woman called Ruth Davenport who has been found murdered in her room in like an apartment block. And it's a very kind of grisly murder. But what's taken place is that they find, I think, her head has been removed from its body and it's been placed in the same position, um, but adjacent to, I think it's a male body, isn't it? A slightly kind of bloated, large male body as well. So you have this kind of bizarre image under the under the duvet of this woman's head this man's body they've kind of been placed next to each other in some kind of almost ritualistic killing in some way it's a very violent scene i think the, the strangest thing about it is when this body is found by the police they kind of zoom in first on the head and i remember that i was actually quite shocked because initially it's a red head and you can see that the eye has been shot out i think the left eye and my immediate thought was are they literally opening with Nadine being killed. I, I thought it was her at first because it's like a, you know it's a redhead woman with a you know with some kind of um, eye mutilation as well. I wasn't sure what that was doing, but it's not Nadine. It turns out it's this person called uh, Ruth Davenport, and I think the the crime scene itself again like I don't want to harp on about how there's some parallels with his other films, but the way the body is found it really reminds me of that bit in Mulholland Drive when. Um, Betty and Rita come across Diane Selwyn's body in that apartment complex uh, as well when they're trying to find out what's going on sort of midway through the film. 
Now, before discussing the repercussions of that murder, I think it's important that one thing that does happen in the run-up to this scene is the little bit of uh, story that leads up to the discovery, which involves this woman called Marjorie, I think, who has a little chihuahua called Armstrong. Armstrong. Yeah. yeah. And the scenes with her where she thinks there's something wrong with her neighbour, who's Ruth Davenport, because she... I think she smells something weird coming from the room. There's no answer there. She calls the police and gets them involved. It's kind of interesting because this is the first moment in the new Twin Peaks where there's actually humour. Kind of humour, kind of farce, which is thrown in, which was always a feature of the original Twin Peaks. And I think it also shows that this is not going to be 100% dark. There are going to be elements of, of levity and farce in it. It's typical of Lynch to kind of include these things. But this scene where she's trying to explain to the two police she calls uh where the keys are there's you know she can't remember her own address she's not sure where ruth is and before realizing that ruth is actually out of town that she's actually given her a set of keys herself there's some funny scenes involving uh i think the superintendent for the apartment complex as well who's i just remember him as being the guy who played whistler in uh in buffy and angel in fact there's two buffy alumni in uh, Buckhorn, aren't there? Oh, because the, the, yeah, the investigating officer from like the main state I think, police. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, the guy who's a member of the initiative, wasn't he? Yeah. That's an aside. If you watch Buffy, <laughs> you notice these things. And actually, the the uh, police in Buckhorn, one of them is again for no apparent reason. Uh, one of them is JJ, who is the owner of JJ's Diner in Parks and Recreation. Um, and then the local cop is the guy who played Nick Newport Sr. as well in Box and Recreation. Again, a completely random aside. When you watch loads of TV, it's really odd when you see characters popping up all over the place. Um, but what I did like about this whole bit, in terms of its humour, was the fact that it has that whimsy that involves these kind of events happening. Very serious, often very violent events. But it involves a group of people who are often quite bumbling and confused and there's lots of farce that gets involved so you have characters there's barney involved there's chip there's hank that you know somebody somebody else's brother-in-law some dodgy business dealings i have no idea if these things are going to be you know important later on but just a very funny set of interactions which gets thrown into the mix and it's quite jarring because the next thing that happens obviously is the discovery of this really gruesome crime scene but it reminds me of the the humor that you see as well in mulholland drive actually of that bit where the two hitmen are having that conversation and one of them, I think their gun goes off and it it hits the woman in the room next door and then she comes in and then another shot goes off, the hoover turns on, all kinds of, you know, just this cascade of, of crazy things happen. Um, so it was nice to have a bit of levity in, uh, you know, actually introduced um, at this point in the story as well. But getting back to this Davenport murder. Yeah, so the police run whatever fingerprints they found in Ruth's apartment and they get a hit for this guy named Hastings. Yeah. Uh, Bill Hastings. Bill Hastings. He's the principal of the local school, yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the photo that comes up on the police computer with the fingerprint match, he's got some crazy goatee in the picture which he doesn't have the rest of the, the episode. So it was clearly they thought, well, he can't look like a principal because why would the police have his fingerprints? It must be from some crazy incident when he was younger when he was shaggy in scooby-doo yeah so there was this weird kind of goatee in the picture on the on the police record 
so they immediately go around to his house and arrest him, much to the alarm of his wife, who is very distressed because they have a dinner party that evening and people are coming over. So the way it seems to be going with Hastings is that they seem to be setting him up almost as a a, a Leland-style character who is potentially unaware that he is being possessed by one of these inhabiting spirits because his fingerprints are all over this crime scene and he remembers having a dream that evening of something which appears to be something very disturbing happening but he doesn't actually believe that he's done anything wrong so is this a a similar kind of possession incident to what we have with Leland but one which he's ended up getting caught that's true and I think it's also unclear who's actually possessing him Yeah, because although there is a parallel with uh, an evil spirit potentially taking him over and causing him to commit these crimes even though he's not fully conscious of what's happening it seems difficult to believe it could be Bob because Bob is in evil Cooper so there yeah. must be some other evil spirit floating around, potentially one of the other evil spirits that we've already seen in the convenience store in Fire Walk With Me, etc. Or it's a new character completely. But it's kind of odd that this plot is playing out. It almost seems like they're developing some parallels to what may have happened in the original Twin Peaks murder. Yeah, and then his his wife comes to visit him in the police station and they have an argument in the cell where she says, oh, I've known about your affair the whole time. And he says, well, I've known about your affair and possibly another affair. And so it seems like maybe he's not quite as innocent as he initially appeared to be when he claimed he didn't know her. Maybe he did know her. Maybe they had been having an affair. And then at the end of that scene, where you see him in the jail cell with the camera on the outside. This is something that I wish I could unsee. (laughs) (laughs) And the camera pans across and there's an empty cell in the middle and then it goes to the cell in the end and you, you know that you know that gif of it's like an octopus that's running along the, the sea floor and it's just got the word nope 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 written across it and this octopus is just running away like nope 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 that was what was going through my mind in that moment when you see that figure sitting in the other jail cell I don't know what the hell it is. It looked like someone who'd been burned. Yeah, it wasn't sure if it was like if it if it was like dirt, or if they were charred. I mean, you could see the eyes, the whites of the eyes almost, but it was this kind of very sullen-looking figure, slumped on the chair, but looking directly at the camera. And then the camera just hangs there, just for you to take it in, and it's freaky as hell when that's happening. And then this figure just kind of vaporizes in this kind of very light puff of ash and smoke that rises up but it's really creepy because you see it's like the remnants of its face kind of rising but still intact for a little bit before kind of hanging and then disappearing completely it's the strangest thing it's not what you need to see it probably what was about three o'clock in the morning (laughs) when you had a lot of coffee donuts cherry pie bit of whiskey it's all it's all kicking off and then that happens it really reminded me of um the creature 
or the thing, the monster that's behind Winkies in mm. Mulholland Drive. That strange homeless character, the monster, which is all kind of dirty and grubby, which is looking after the blue box and stays behind the dumpster around the back. It reminded me of that. Something very otherworldly about it, but also strangely physical as well. But in this case, the fact it just kind of disappears and you're not sure, even if you've seen what you've just seen, whether whether anyone else can see this thing or if it's just something for the viewer to take in. What the hell this thing was? Was it there for a reason? Was it looking over what was happening? I have no idea. And, and the thing is, when the camera is panning across, you think, "Is it? are we just going to see a row of empty jail cells? Is there going to be someone there? This is David Lynch. It could be anything. But that was not whatever it was that my mind was expecting to see. <laughs> that. that was not it. And it, it hung on it, on this figure, staring out of the TV, staring right at you watching for just long enough for you to think, oh, it's going to move, it's going to be something's going to happen, something's going to happen, something's going to happen. And then it just, off it floats, and off away its head floats. And, oh, yeah. I think the one thing that that was kind of weird about it as well was the fact it just kind of disappears in a puff of smoke. It did make me wonder if this is something tied to the Jeffreys mythology, because he can disappear as well. And I know that when he, so in the missing pieces, when he rematerializes in Buenos Aires, he kind of appears slightly charred. There's like a big electrical burn behind him and you know, he, he's smoking when he turns up because the nature of the power that allows him to teleport, whether voluntarily or not, is based on electricity. And I, I know that obviously there's lots of themes of sparking and electricity in the world of Twin Peaks here. Um, I don't know if it's something to do with that. Maybe he's being teleported around or I, I have no idea. But there's that weird thing where you know that at some point that same character is going to show up again. Oh, when, why, for whatever reason, I don't know. But sometime in the next 16 hours of Twin Peaks The Return, that thing will show up again when you least expect it. I don't know. But it was freaky as hell. It was wonderful, though. It was a wonderful moment. The, the way things are going, the final part is going to be at least 45 minutes of that dude just staring at you. <laughs> just waiting to see if you're going to move before it does. Oh, my word. Yeah, of, of of all of all the horror of parts one and two, that was the freakiest thing, I think. And it was something that wasn't graphic, wasn't horrific at all, but it's literally the stuff of nightmares. I will almost certainly have nightmares about that. So going back to this killing and this guy, Bill Hastings, who's been charged with the murder of uh, Ruth Davenport, the fact that he's a high school principal... Again, going back to these parallels that might be taking place with the events of Twin Peaks 25 years ago, it was kind of interesting that they're introducing a character who functions in a high school environment. I do wonder if there's going to be some element of another generation of people somehow being affected. I don't know if it's relevant that he's a high school principal. It may just be a motif that Lynch likes to use, but it was odd, yeah. Even one of the other cops says, that's my kid's principal, Yeah, don't they? Yeah. So they might be trying to make some interesting parallels, you know, about what happened before happening again, you know. But yeah. it's unclear. I mean, certainly the original principle in the original Twin Peaks had nothing to do with it. 
but it does introduce the potential to have that setting in this storyline. Yeah, and you've got the local police who are dealing with it, and then someone from the state police turns up, presumably having now left the initiative behind. (laughs) (laughs) And what he's doing there, we don't really know. There's something sinister about his involvement. I don't know if he really is state police. Could he be FBI? Could be. I think that he knows there's something more to what's going on than just a random murder that's happened in this otherwise small town. And he certainly doesn't seem too surprised when they find what looks like some remnant of a corpse, I don't know if it's skin or something, or a bit yeah. of flesh in the back of uh, Hastings' car. Yeah. He seems to think this is part of the ongoing investigation. So, yeah. you know, how he fits in, I don't know. But interestingly, he he won't go in and interview him. He sends the local police in to interview him on the pretext that, oh, you know him, your friends, he might tell you something. I don't think that's his real motive. I think he doesn't want to see him, or if there is someone inhabiting him, he doesn't want them to see him. Yeah, in the same way that... Well, maybe it's like how Mike was able to see who Bob was possessing. Yeah. You know, so the inhabiting spirit could function perfectly well in Philip Gerard. But when he but when he wasn't on his haloperidol or whatever, Mike was able to kind of take over more and he could see where Bob was. So maybe he can see the spirit inside this guy. Yeah, I like that, actually. That's a that's a very interesting idea. Mm. So I, I don't think that's the last we've seen of of him, if he if he is state police or FBI or whatever he is. I think now's another good time to repeat the caveat that, to be honest, we haven't watched episodes three and four, but everything we're saying could be completely undone within the first five (laughs) minutes of the next episode. I don't know. Yeah. So Bill Hastings reveals to his wife, Phyllis, during the argument in the jail cell, that he's aware that she's been having an affair with George, who also seems to be his lawyer because he turns up later on and he's asking for him. And Phyllis then goes home and Bad Cooper is in her house, but she doesn't seem alarmed to see him. She says, what are you doing here? As if she knows him. And Bill did say something about her potentially having had a second affair, but he doesn't know who with. Could she have been having a affair with Bad Cooper? How does she know him? Yeah, that's actually... Yeah, that could actually be the case. I didn't think of that. Um, I, well, yeah, I thought that was kind of a throwaway line, but I, I suppose with Lynch there is never a throwaway line. That's probably true, because he does seem to know her, and she needs, seems to know him. She's not surprised that he's turned up. And also he makes reference to George, so he must know that she's also having an affair with George as well. Yeah, because he says this is George's gun, and then he shoots her, drops it, presumably with the intention of framing George yeah. for her murder, and just leaves. And was it my imagination, or... Did she also have the same eye shot out? It, I did look like that. It was hard to know because the body was kind of turned kind of funny, but I think it. I think she did have the same thing. So, yeah, I think maybe the presumption is Cooper's going around just killing absolutely everyone at the moment by shooting them in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Good Cooper, we need you. <laughs> Speaking of good Cooper, who is still in the Black Lodge, which is way freakier than it was before Um, presumably because now they have budget and CGI to do a lot of this stuff although the strange thing was when they didn't have any budget or CGI they still managed to make it 
creepy and weird as hell. The scenes in the Black Lodge in the final episode of season two are still some of the freakiest things I've ever seen. It, it still sets my nerves on edge, no matter how many times I've yeah, watched it. It's so it. unsettling seeing what's happening. Yeah. I think it's just a, it's just a mood he creates with a very minimal set. It's just how every shot is framed and everything that takes place. It is otherworldly. Yeah, so Good Cooper is in there and some familiar faces are in there. <laughs> some unfamiliar non-faces are in there. Uh, right, so he has a conversation he has a conversation with Mike Yeah. who says to him is this the past or is it the future? Yeah, or is it the future, is, is this, it the past? Is this yeah. past or is it future? And then he has a conversation with Laura, but now Laura, so 25 years older Laura, but who is still wearing the same black dress by the looks of it yeah. that Laura wore in the scenes in the Black Lodge before. So she's aged in the Lodge. Yeah. Um, and she delivers this message that Dale is now able to leave the Lodge. So fulfilling this original prophecy or statement, whatever it was, she says that you can now go. Presumably the 25 years are up. That ties into the fact that uh, evil Coopers in the outside world is being drawn back to the Lodge so that he can come back and presumably the good Dale can re-enter the world. Yeah. And the way they play that scene is partly echoed from the famous scene from uh, season one of Cooper's original dream, where Laura says cryptic things like, sometimes my arms bend back, and then walks over to him and kisses him and whispers something to him. But this isn't the same dream, and she seems to be whispering something very different, but we don't know what it might be. So it's interesting, because obviously the last time this happened what she whispered was the answer to the big mystery who killed Laura Palmer when she says my father killed me and that becomes apparent later on this time it's unclear exactly what is being whispered is it is it a message about where she is what's happened to her certainly there's something strange about Cooper's response to hearing this because he kind of listens he has a hint of a smile at first when she's talking but then his face kind of freezes a little bit. It goes very cold. And he almost gasps a little bit when she's talking. It's something very concerning. I, I don't know if she's telling him some kind of warning. But if it's in keeping with the cyclical nature of what happens in the world of Twin Peaks. There's some central mystery. And she's revealing to Cooper in this setting some answer to some fundamental mystery and i'm not sure if we know what that mystery is yet yeah Um, we can take some guesses based on what happens but it's unclear exactly what that could be about and then at one point she removes her face and there's just this blinding bright light coming from inside so that reminds me a little bit of yul brinner in westworld when he takes his face (laughs) but instead of being all the mechanics uh, it's just there's this glowing thing inside i do wonder if that's like her soul is it is it the fact that like her soul is still inside her? Because she makes reference to being dead but also alive. And yeah. maybe by surviving there with her soul, there's that element of them, of some force still wanting to take her soul. Um, and she's protecting herself because she kind of found the power to uh, hold on to it in spite of everything. Um, but maybe that's 
part of the mystery but this almost seems like a, like a metaphysical mystery because she's not in the real world so the mystery that's being solved cannot really be to do with a real world event yeah i think and then the curtains seem to turn into some kind of blazing wind yeah i don't know how to describe it and she screams and she seems to just literally fly off somewhere yeah. again you see mike and he says is this is it the past or is it the future? Yeah. And that's another point, I think, with this. he There's a, there's lots of dialogue in these two episodes where people say things twice. It always yeah. happened a little bit before, but now we're seeing it very frequently with lines being repeated immediately in succession as as well as sort of used as framing devices, the same character saying the same line twice. That's always been a motif running through Twin Peaks. Um, I still haven't figured out what it always means, really. Uh, whether it's for emphasis or if it's to denote the tone in which it's being delivered in some way, whether it has some additional meaning when something is said twice, I don't know. Or whether it means that something can be interpreted two different ways. I, I, you know, I don't know, but it was very noticeable in these two episodes that certain things are said twice very deliberately. And then he also meets Leyland very briefly, who asks him to find Laura. Yeah. Or maybe that's the mystery um, that, you know, maybe... Leland, because is, is this the good Leland now in the lodge? I presume it is. It seems to be because he seems desperately unhappy. Yeah. Um, so he must be obviously aware of what happened. His spirit or his the good side of him might be there. Does that mean that the bad? I, I don't know. Has he become? Is there a chance that he has become a lodge spirit in some way? So he has split into two or something? Or yeah, because the the last time we saw him in the lodge, it was a doppelganger version of him with a doppelganger eyes. Mm. And he says, I did not kill anybody. <laughs> and then laughs. And then makes this really weird movement <laughs> towards Cooper. Was, that, that was creepy. It was creepy as hell. But this seems to be a very different Leland, who genuinely seems to want Belle to, to find Laura and help her in some way. But he seems very resigned. He was kind of slouched down in his chair. He seems resigned to... I to wonder if he kind of feels that it's not appropriate for him to be asked for help for somebody you know from somebody else to help him find his daughter after what he did to her hmm. there's something weird there's a lot of guilt and tragedy in him um, and I wonder if there's something to do with that and then perhaps the most unexpected thing of all in the whole of the black lord sequences we did wonder how they were going to do the entity that you could call the little man from another place yeah. or the arm. And of all the things I might have thought they were going to do, it wouldn't be a strobelit tree with a weird balloon brain mouth head thing on the top yeah. of it. That that head thing, it just seemed it kind of seemed straight out of a razor head, that like the mm. headpiece. Yeah. But it was the most wonderful lynchian way of saying this is how we're going to do this now <laughs> you know um but it was strange i think it's so i think mike leads dale to go and meet him and says like this is the arm yeah the evolution this is the, the evolution arm. of the arm and yeah you have this weird brain in a balloon or sack with some weird face and it even makes things or it tries to make the whooping sound mm. um that the little man from another place made before 
but it kind of sounds really weird and distorted and it clearly can communicate and talk it's unclear you know what it actually is the one thing i did think about this was this idea that the spirits can take on evolved forms yeah might mean that actually we start seeing evolved forms of other spirits that have taken on different forms as well we just don't know what they are yet yeah which could lead us towards an answer of is there an evolved form of bob yeah because of course we can't have the original bob yeah. sadly um, there's something that could have changed and maybe they they do take on different forms and change their appearance maybe they don't all take on the appearance of a tree with a weird balloon brain <laughs> smushy head thing but uh yeah i don't know that there's something going on that that phrase the evolution of the arm you can imagine there being evolutions of other spirits as well yeah um, in that place as well and then he tells dale that he can't leave until his doppelganger returns to the lodge yeah. which ties into the fact that the evil cooper on the outside world knows that it's 25 years time is up he needs to go back again yeah and then the evolution of the arm seems to have its own doppelganger which, which has a kind of a yellowy face doesn't it yeah. yeah um which he meets at the end of the corridor and i wasn't sure if the implication was that that is what attacked the couple yeah in so, New York. yeah so you have this scene where i think so cooper appears to encounter what is the doppelganger of the arm. Yeah. And then it starts freaking out and lashing out at Cooper. Cooper is freaking out as well. Then the kind of chevron floor starts moving and becoming a bit unstable. And the doppelganger of the arm, I presume, uh, shouts non-existent. Hmm. And Cooper gets sucked through the floor. And he kind of is falling through space in some way but then he emerges in the glass box back in new york where he's kind of floating around inside he kind of lands on it he kind of phases through the glass ends up in the chamber and he's kind of floating around inside but this is a, a point when the young couple are actually not in the room they're outside discussing the coffee aren't they so they don't see obviously him arriving yeah they're, they're trying to figure out where the guard has gone and realising that the guard isn't around. So the one thing I do know about this is, you know, the cameras are still rolling on all of mm. this. So I do wonder if all this is being picked up. And, you know, you know, whoever this person is who's funding this, do they check everything and they'll, they'll see what's going on? Is that, that going to be a future plot point? Did this even happen? Um, but what is clear is that he kind of emerges in the glass box and then Cooper then gets sucked back to the Black Lodge, doesn't he? But then the next thing that happens is potentially you have the doppelganger might be the thing that goes through and that might be what appears to the young couple later in their timeline yeah or, or some form that the doppelganger takes in the real world yeah which has actually got like a physical humanoid form in some way yeah it's unclear what's going on um but actually one thing about that is well two things actually one is the fact that he turns into a tree is weird yeah. Now, I've been wondering about this because there's something to do, obviously, in Twin Peaks between wood and spirits and things being transferred in wood and, you know, these telegraph poles and people being trapped in wooden drawer pulls and that. There's something going on with this that, you know, you know the log lady happens. There's something about that and how, in this case, the evolution of the little man from another place or the arm is now in the form of wood. 
And, and it's a, a leafless tree. And did it remind you of the dead sycamore, sycamore trees, trees that yeah. surround the pool yeah. at, at Glastonbury Grove? Yeah. I think there's something about what's going on there which is going to be important. I mean, why it turns into a tree, um, I don't know. But there's it just starts to fill in some of the elements of the potential mythology they're building. The other thing is, I remember that in the secret history of Twin Peaks, there is lots of talk about aliens and UFOs and things like that. But it's kind of weird that maybe when these spirits from the Black Lodge or maybe the White Lodge as well appear in the real world, maybe they do have an alien-like appearance. And maybe that's where the confusion comes from, where you know people are documenting these UFO events as being to do with the aliens, but actually these aliens are actually just a log, uh, the lodge spirits, mm. which is kind of what's alluded to in the book. But maybe this is the explanation that when they take on a, a like a corporeal form in the real world, they do look like what we classically classically think of as these grey type aliens. And one other thing I remember when Cooper was talking to the arm or the evolution of the arm. And he says to him, 253, which is another set of three digits, similar but different to the one that the giant, if it was the giant, gave to Cooper in the in the black and white sequence at the very beginning. And then he says, Bob, Bob, Bob. And then he says, time and time again. I don't know if that reflects the message that was given to Major Briggs, you know, the Cooper, Cooper, Cooper thing mm. maybe that's the message being sent out in some way i don't know but yeah that's the last time you heard a name being produced and maybe that's the message that bob 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 is out in the real world i don't know what that could mean but yeah because as you say often things are are repeated so that you have two of them but in those cases you have it three times yeah. cooper 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 bob 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 yeah. three times he's time and time again is this referring to some uh cyclical nature of the spirits being out in the world and then having to come back into the lodge because it seems to be a very specific thing of 25 years. Mm. Why is it that evil Cooper has to be sucked back into the lodge somehow? What is the balance that is restored when that happens? Yeah. I think the two other details as well from all the sequences in uh, the Red Room or Black Lodge, etc. Two things I I think are cool. One, when we first see Cooper and Mike appears to him, we see that he has a little, it looks like a, a green or jade-coloured satin statue mm. on the little table next to him. And I do wonder if that's some link between the planetary opening of the uh, of the portal to the Black Lodge, because I think that was, when it Ju- opened when Jupiter, Jupiter and Saturn, and Saturn yeah. are aligned. Jup- and the other bit is when, I think after Laura is kind of, raptured up you know (laughs) in some way they had that scene where the camera's kind of moving across the floor the chevron floor and the zigzags are all swirly and weird the curtains are moving forward there's like this red mist that's kind of descending but you see this white horse and it's interesting because the white horse was seen by sarah i think sarah palmer sees it doesn't she yeah uh, when she's been drugged by Leland back in the original series. So it's one of those pieces of Twin Peaks iconography. Um, but what it means here, I don't know. The only connection is that Laura's involved in both situations. Mm. Uh, maybe it symbolises some damage to 
Laura has taken place, you know, but I don't know what it means, but it was obvious that they're using the white horse for a reason in both, you know, in both cases. And then very briefly, because it is very brief at this point, there is, I think, one scene that takes place in Las Vegas, which is the scene between Todd and Roger. Roger is given a pile of cash by Mr. Todd, who says, tell her that she's got the job or something cryptic like that. And then Roger asks him, why do you let him make you do these things or or something along Mm. those lines? And I don't know if it's the implication that there is some kind of malign influence that is forcing Mr. Todd in a, a, a real world way to do things mm. or whether he's also got some kind of inhabiting spirit that he is aware of and that Roger is also aware of. Yeah, I think there's... So the first thing I thought when they referenced this person who might be in control of him or at least manipulating him a little bit, I thought, is, does that mean it's bad Cooper? Is bad Cooper the guy who's you know who's running things here? But like you say, it, there's this other element of wondering if in this new Twin Peaks world that we have, there are lots of lodge spirits running around, lots of people possessed by them, and they're actually interacting with each other. So we don't, we're not really seeing what we think we're seeing all the time. You know, are these events happening between spirits the whole time, and we don't realise what's real and what's not? in terms of sort of human interactions. The other thing I think is quite interesting in the choice of Las Vegas is that it's another place where gambling happens, that it should be somewhere that's very specifically associated with gambling. Yeah, I think there's something weird about using Las Vegas in particular, but certainly what that money is for is kind of odd. So the one thing that reminds me of is when Mr. Todd says, you know, tell her she has the job. It reminded me very much of that bit in Mulholland Drive when Adam Kesher is trying to cast his new movie and then there's new investors show up and they put the face of, I think, Camilla Rhodes on the table and they're like, this is the girl. And it's clear that he's interacting with people and events outside of his control. People are making decisions on his behalf. And there was a a weird parallel I felt about something going on here. And again, it ties into this lynch feature of uh you know the woman in trouble there's something going on here but we've only touched the surface of what might be happening here i think one of the things i found most unsettling about all of this was the fact that so much of this was taking place in new locations i know we've watched the original series many many times but there was something about twin peaks as a place as a physical place even if it wasn't real that almost created a bubble in which these events could take place so as as weird and disturbing as freaky as they were you expected them in that town and in the woods around it but to see these events spilling out beyond the woods around Twin Peaks and into the rest of the world it almost feels like it's getting closer to us it's closer to reality However unreal it may be, it's gone beyond the bubble of it being about this town where this weird stuff happened. It's it's spreading, and I don't know if this is linked somehow to what the might-be-giant says 
in the beginning about it's in our house now, but about the sounds, is something spreading, is some malign influence spreading. But it, it feels very unnerving for these things to be happening beyond the boundaries of this town that we're so used to this weirdness being confined into. But I think ultimately I wouldn't be surprised if all these events are ultimately going to go back to their source in Twin Peaks. It's almost like we're getting a sense, like you say, of all this stuff spewing out into the world and grasping at different parts of the US at least whilst this is happening but I think the core of it is going to be the power and the evil in the woods mm. that's going to be the root of it um, and again that the idea that we talked about earlier you know if if the Black Lodge in Buffy terms was hell mm. there are hell mouths it seems everywhere and there are these pl- things popping up out of these places and clearly people are trying to exploit or harness or understand what's going on but it's all rooted in like the central place which is twin peaks where everything originates yeah so let's go back to where it all began what's actually been happening in twin peaks because suddenly we get this incredibly warm overwhelming familiarity seeing all these characters again we get bombarded with all these new characters and new versions of old characters that we see out in the world and then the moment you switch back to Twin Peaks the moment you see Lucy sitting behind her desk or see Hawk on the phone to the log lady or see James walking into the bar it's it's this incredible feeling of relief even though weird stuff is happening because you think if anyone can help these good people in Twin Peaks are the people who can actually do something. And they're going to need Cooper, good Cooper, as their kind of spiritual leader to kind of get to the bottom of what's going on. They need a figurehead to guide them. But it's like the troops are aligning in Twin Peaks to uh, ready against this threat, which is brewing everywhere. Yeah. So who have we got? We've got Dr. Jacoby, who is now living seemingly out in the woods, Getting deliveries of shovels. Yeah. Lots of shovels. <laughs> and whatever he needs them for, he doesn't need any help with it. No. <laughs> he likes to work alone. He likes to work alone. And that's all we see of him, that yeah. one brief scene shot largely through trees. Yeah. I like the bit where he, he has his sunglasses on, he takes them off and he's got his, his red and blue ones. <laughs> I think underneath those, he should have those, like those googly eye ones. <laughs> yeah, so the first sort of real interaction we see of original Twin Peaks characters is between Ben and Jerry back at the Great Northern. So there's this kind of bizarre interaction. But again, like old Twin Peaks, the kind of light-hearted one as well. Ben sitting quite dejected at his uh, table with his nice little wooden Ben logo on the, you know, on um, like a paperweight or, or ornament in front of him. Um, there's some funny story about some woman who's complaining about a skunk that may have got into her room. <laughs> there's a character of Beverly who's introduced, who's played by Ashley Judd. And then Jerry shows up, uh, completely high as a kite. You know, he's clearly running some kind of legal, is it a legal marijuana business or something? Yeah, I think so. Um and he's philosophizing, but he's completely high at the same time. It's kind of funny to see him interacting there. 
I do wonder if this is like if he's going to start off as this kind of crazy hippie beardy guy, and then as the plot goes on, maybe he'll actually then kind of come out of it a little bit and then start to become the Jerry Horn we remember as he needs to be involved in some plot line. Yeah. I think it's odd to bring him back just to be kind of the, co- the, the the comic relief in this. But you know what was funny is that much like when he comes back with his butter and brie baguette, he's now obsessing over this jam and banana bread, banana yeah, bread yeah. concoction that he that he's made, which he is making completely high as a kite. <laughs> so he still loves his food no matter what else has changed. I think what's odd is that in terms of the relationship, you know, Ben seems completely exasperated with Jerry. And it's almost seem, seems like they've grown apart over the years. Now, at first, I thought that Jerry had maybe taken over the drug operation that was being run by the Renault brothers in some, elite, in some illegal capacity. But it's clear it's a legal operation, which he's running now. Yeah. Um, and he, he asked Ben if he's slept with Beverly yet. And Ben sort of scolds him a bit. Hmm. So he's clearly, well, possibly still trying to be a better person. Yeah. But he is smoking cigars again. There are yeah. no carrots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's it's not obviously not entirely worked. Yeah, he's still trying to be good, but he's probably struggling with it. I think it's interesting, the choice of phrase where Jerry refers to Beverly as the new girl, mm. which was, I think, used when a new girl was introduced from the perfume counter in Horn's department store to One-Eyed Jacks, yeah. which was the brothel. So I don't know if that was a direct reference to the fact that Jacks might still be running in some capacity. Um, it'd be interesting to see if that plays out properly. Um, and also I thought it was kind of odd that Sylvia's not around mm. in this. I mean, I know it's a short snippet, but I think she is in the cast. So it'll be interesting to know if Sylvia is still married to Ben. Because obviously there's that whole plot involving Ben and the Haywoods that was a big cliffhanger at the end of season two. Yeah, He clearly survived his head injury, <laughs> you know, uh, when he um, was hit against the, the fireplace. So something must be resolved there, I think. I, I want to know. I want to know if it was an ad lib where, right at the end, he said, "Is that mother's hat?" <laughs> <laughs> those those little lines that that are perfect, perfect Twin Peaks humour. I'd love to know where it came from. So then we've got the scenes at the sheriff's department where Lucy is still working there, but she's now Lucy Brennan, according to her nameplate. So presumably, her and Andy have got married. And someone comes in asking to speak to Sheriff Truman and she says, which one? And goes on to explain that one is sick and one is fishing. So, A, that means they're both alive. We hope. We hope. Which one is sick and which one is fishing? I don't know. It opens up a door that otherwise might not have been there for... Michael Onkin to come back. Yeah. Very briefly. I know that... Well, I don't know if he is going to come back, but I think it'd be really interesting if the fact they've kept him alive in the universe means that there's a potential for him to do something. Um, and that'd be nice to see. But I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Unless he's the one who's fishing. He could be the one Because he did fishing. like fishing. You know, he... Uh... Yeah, it, it, it could be that the new Sheriff Truman is off sick and he's not around that day. And that the old Sheriff Truman has said, you know what? I'm going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. And then we've got phone calls that the log lady are making to uh, Hawk, who is now Deputy Chief Hawk. Yeah. He's clearly running the place when whichever Truman is in charge is is not around. Yeah. 
and she makes two phone calls to him, one when he's in the sheriff's department and then another to his mobile when he's out in the woods, which is a new development in, in Twin Peaks terms, being able to actually call people when they're out and about this newfangled technology. And she gives him two messages. And the first message, she says, a message from the log, something is missing and you have to find it. It's to do with Special Agent Cooper. The way you will find it has something to do with your heritage. So I think that last point in particular, again, it strikes a chord with what was being discussed very heavily in the secret history of Twin Peaks, where they do cover a lot of Native American mythology. I do wonder if, although there are lots of red herrings, I think, in that dossier, um, some of it is going to ring true. And there's some relevance to uh, to this now, although it could be as simple as the fact that Hawk is referred to as a tracker in the original series. Mm. And maybe it's his Native American tracking skills, which might come in handy if he's going to be the one who's going to lead the, the charge and try and get Cooper out of the Black Lodge. So what was it that Cooper said to Hawk? You know when he thinks he's leaving town, he th- just before he gets suspended, the, the, the murder case is over and he's saying goodbye to everyone and it's all a bit end of Wizard of Oz and mm. shaking everyone's hand. What is it that he, he says to something, something to him about coming to find him? Yeah, he says, is it something like, if ever I get lost, I want to be you to be the man they send to find me or something? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's one of those prophetical lines, you know, I'll see you again in 25 years. When you see me again, it won't be me. Mm. Yeah, maybe this is another one. It'd be really interesting if, you know, if he is going to come back and uh, uh, be the one who kind of gets Cooper out. And certainly that's implied by what, um, by what happens later in the episode. Yeah. And then later on, he goes walking in the woods, um, in, specifically in Ghostwood, and the dog lady calls him again. And she, she asks him where he's walking tonight and he says something like your log and me are on the same page yet again or something that implies that they're having some kind of regular conversations because yeah. uh, he's out walking in the woods and she says that she's sorry she can't be there with him the stars turn and a time presents itself which is the title of the episode um, and i think it's probably implying that saturn and jupiter are again coming into alignment and the lodge is about to, or the portal to the lodge is about to open again. Yeah. And he finds Glastonbury Grove and he sees the pool and the, the dead sycamore trees. And then he starts to see the red curtain of the Black Lodge. Mm. It's a really cool effect when he's kind of shining the torch in the trees and you see flashes of it as it's partially illuminated. Um, but also he's clearly not phased by it at all. He sees it as, I think he understands the spiritual side of what's going on. So he knows that there's something happening here. And I do wonder, you know, is he going to go in? Is, it, is something going to happen there? Or is, is he going to be there to wait for Cooper to come out? It's, it's a bit unclear. I think actually now's a good point also to talk about the fact that it's, it's actually, I think those moments are, are tinged with a lot of sadness when you see the scenes of the log lady talking to Hawk on the phone. So obviously Catherine Coulson passed away very early on, I think, in the filming of this. And, you know, again, she's fantastic in her very brief scenes as the log lady, and it's clear she's fundamental to what's um, happening. Um, it's kind of sad to see her so frail. She was clearly very sick at the time as well. But I think it's a nice tribute that they managed to get her in this. And, uh, you know, it's kind of sad that this is her last role, but it's kind of a very iconic role, and that she has such an important 
role in the story is kind of a nice place for the character to be at this point as well yeah and we also see sarah palmer who inexplicably is still living in that house if i were her i would have i would have got the heck out of there i would have gone out of town i would have gone out of that house i would have gone out of the entire place but she's still there still smoking still drinking and she's watching some graphic wildlife documentary that is filmed in night vision of lionesses attacking a a warthog or I don't know know what it was and this incredibly creepy shot of what's on the television reflected in the mirrors that are on the wall behind her it's like she is surrounded by this carnage it's almost like she's lost in this world she looks very haunted by what's happened to her she again looks very lost almost and completely engulfed by all these events these tragic events that have happened to her and maybe she's just stuck there and she doesn't know what to do um it's interesting though i mean obviously there's a there's a still or at least a scene in one of the trailers where you see her kind of pushing a a trolley down a shopping aisle it's like clearly some you know it's it's filled with alcohol and things like that i mean Mm. her life has clearly slipped into a very dark place after everything that happened and it is 25 years on from that as well we also get another scene between Hawk and Lucy and Andy where he's telling them to dig some old files up from storage and tells them that it's something to do with Agent Cooper. And they say, oh, but he hasn't been seen or heard from since before their son Wally was born and Wally is now 24. Which implies that Cooper went missing not that long after the events of season two ended and certainly before their child would have been born. But their reaction doesn't imply that they think anything nefarious happened to him. They just think he disappeared. Yeah, because he said that he hasn't even sent a Christmas card. Yeah, there's no concern for what happened to him. It's almost like they just think that maybe he just left. Yeah. You know, maybe there's there's something that happened and he left and they think that's just a natural part of what happened. Yeah, but clearly the three of them are going to have some kind of investigation um, led by Hawk into potentially where is Cooper, what has happened to him. And why is he needed now? Yeah. Yeah. And that leaves us with the final destination of the park, the last place that we see in Twin Peaks, an iconic location in, in Twin Peaks, down at the Roadhouse, where we get Shelley hanging out with her friends, James walks in with some guy, no idea who he was. There's new music playing. And there was, I just got this incredible sense of warmth from that whole scene. It felt like coming home. Yeah. 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 A a sense of normality. And I think particularly where you have characters like Shelley and James who were unashamedly good guys Mm. in the original series. They They may have been caught up in very bad events. But they were the positive spin on things, yeah. always. And uh... yeah, and in James's case, sometimes he got quite a lot of flack as a character <laughs> for it. But they were always such positive characters that it was so lovely to end on that note where they they see him come back in, and and it's clear that a lot has happened in the past twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Shelley's got a daughter. We don't mm-hmm. know who the father is. Is it? Presumably it's Bobby. Yeah. But I don't know. She also has that look at that new character played by Balthazar Getty. Yeah. 
maybe maybe she had a child with Bobby and now they've separated and I don't know what's going on. Um, but he's something to do with it as well. Yeah, and she says something about thinking that her daughter is in a relationship with the wrong guy. Yeah. Which presumably will, will come up again in the future when we actually meet whoever her daughter is. Yeah. And I don't know who the random British guy is who comes in with James. Yeah, with a weird... Was he got like a green glove on his hand or something? Yeah. And claims that the location is the dog's bollocks. <laughs> but it felt like there was something very symbolic about one of the core classic characters from old school Twin Peaks introducing the place to a next generation character who, I mean, I don't know, maybe they'll never be seen again mm. in the show. But it, it was symbolic of introducing it to a new generation of audiences as well, I thought. I think what's really nice in that scene as well is the look that James has on his face. He seems very reassured and he looks around very nostalgically at the place. It's odd that he doesn't associate it too much with the negative things that took place in the town. Clearly a lot has happened in that time. Yeah. And there's even reference that when he was away, he was in a motorcycle accident and things. But he seems to be almost at, almost at peace which was something he never was in the series. He was always caught up in the events with Laura and then, for some reason, with Evelyn. <laughs> um, but he always seemed kind of uh, in the midst of just a whirlwind of events that were breaking him. He wasn't almost—he wasn't emotionally capable of dealing with the seriousness of the situations, but he seems happy to be back, which is a really nice... There's a look on his face. He doesn't say much, but it's just mm -hmm. his eyes are almost like there to show the viewer we're back in Twin Peaks again. You know, yeah. it's still there. The town is still there. So even though all this stuff you've seen has been happening, at its core, the show still is about this town. And this scene is kind of there to remind people what the show is kind of about. Yeah. Although, obviously, now it's got a much bigger scope as well. And Shelley makes this comment about Oh, James is cool. James has always been cool. And it was like sending out a message to the haters out there. Yeah, it's almost like David Lynch is saying, I know what you've been saying <laughs> about James for the last, you know, 25 years. <laughs> and we all agree that what happened with Evelyn was not good, you know, and was part of that kind of run of dodgy episodes in season two. Mm. Um, it was kind of unrelated to anything. He was kind of caught up in this nonsense. But I think Lynch really likes James as a character. I think he likes him in the context of his appearance, mainly in the first series of Twin Peaks, certainly how he is in the pilot. And I think that's why he brought him back so importantly in Fire Walk With Me as well. He, he sees him as fundamentally tied to Laura's story. Mm. And he sees that this new Twin Peaks is still anchored largely to Laura's story. He sees that that original Twin Peaks season is kind of the core of what's leading the show forward. I think he likes James and he's basically saying, look, you know, don't blame James for everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not his fault. He's cool. We like him. Yeah. And was it my imagination? Or was Jacques Renaud behind the bar? How does that work? Yeah, that I, that I took a double take on that because I he's kind of hovering in the back. He's got a huge beard now. Yeah. But that looks like Jacques Renaud behind the bar of the roadhouse. I think in the credits he's listed as uh, Jean-Michel Renault, 
Now, I thought there were only three Renault brothers. Yeah. There was, you know, Jean, Jacques and... Bernard. Bernard, yeah. So how this guy fits in, I don't know. He does look like an owl, though, which I thought was kind of interesting. He's got like this, he's, he looks like just a giant owl behind the bar. Yeah. Um, Are there a load of Renault cousins waiting in the wings? Well, that was the thing. In? He could be a cousin, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case because cousins feature very heavily in the Twin Peaks universe. There's lots of, lots of weird allusions to, you know, Maddie and Laura being cousins. Gordon Cole in Fire Walk with Me referring to Lil being my mother's sister's girl or something. It was something like that when he's um, talking about the Blue Rose case that uh, Chet and Sam are about to head out on. You know, this concept of cousins does come up quite a lot. And I wouldn't be surprised if the, if the Renaults have another set of cousins and that's how they brought him back. Yeah, because of course you can have a cousin played by the same person who played the other cousin. But it's kind of weird that he would show his face in Twin Peaks again <laughs> after everything his brothers have done. <laughs> but you don't know, you know. And still tending bar yeah. at the Roadhouse. Long family tradition. <laughs> I think the really nice way that the episode ends, actually, is, like again, with the evolution of the Roadhouse as well. Instead of having Julie Cruz as the house band, there's another band, the Chromatics, playing some kind of weird synth-pop piece bathed in blue light. It has the same aura of the original Roadhouse, but it just seems updated, which is really nice. It's got this really, it seems a bit hipstery, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, But it creates, again, this sense of homecoming, I think, in that final scene. It's really nice. And to have the music playing, and it seems quite uplifting uh, at the end, after everything that's happened, and then the credits roll. And I think it's really nice the way they do it. So you start, you know, they then start listing everyone who's been in it. You actually start to see who these people actually are some of them weren't given names you start to figure out what's going on there's this it begins quite nicely with the um in memory of Catherine Coulson and Frank Silver and obviously there'll be a couple more of those for other actors who have uh, passed um, before the show has been released as well there's some odd things in there again we mentioned at the very beginning you know the giant is not listed it's just got some question marks so he's probably not the giant etc and again David Lynch is heavily credited uh not just being uh, like the director and writer, but had a, clearly had a huge part in the sound design of this thing. He does love sound in his films. It does sound wonderful. There's mm. not much music in it from Angela Badalamenti, which is a bit odd. The sound design generally in these episodes is really nice. You do have to kind of put it on quite loud to hear it. And it's so nice to hear the, the sparks of electricity and the, the general rumble that's going on through some of the episode as well. Um, it's a beautifully put together um, sound design on this on this show. Yeah, so it does feel like some of the very famous musical motifs from the original haven't come up yet. Because some of the characters that they're associated with, I suppose, haven't yeah, like come Audrey's up yet. Audrey's theme is not there. Laura Palmer's theme hasn't really been played. Hmm. But they will presumably come in when the time is right. Yeah, so after a much longer than planned episode, uh, we've had a chance to kind of talk about everything we've been feeling and experiencing as a result of watching just the first two episodes of Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, We've kind of covered everything that's happened and what we think some of it might mean. I suppose to summarise, it'd be good to maybe talk about, well, firstly, what we think the response to the show is going to be. 
and secondly what we think some of the ongoing mysteries are that are going to be pervading the rest of the season so what do you think about you know that first thing you know what you know, how the show is going to be received i think that fans of the original it might be a bit divisive but i think in general people are going to embrace it and run with it because i think it would have been just as divisive to try and recreate something that was too similar to the past yeah. i think for people who have never seen the original or might vaguely remember seeing it in the dim and distant past and all they really remember is a backwards talking man in a red room if they just come to this cold having spent most of their time watching game of thrones and the walking dead i think they are gonna have an extreme reaction yeah. and it will either be very positive or deeply negative I, th I think some people just will not go with it it's a little bit too out there i think for a mainstream audience an audience who has never seen twin peaks before is gonna struggle unless they're quite accepting of experiencing this kind of thing because it's a very surreal portrayal it's very lynchian yes but it's it's almost too out there i think um at, like at such an early stage to try and draw in viewers i think it's kind of interesting because the marketing was almost non-existent in terms of showing trailers but i don't know what you could have shown that would have drawn people in without it being a con in some way yeah. so it's actually quite nice that what they've done is they've let people just find it and experience it and i think there are going to be things in this season which i think are going to work and which won't work as well i think there are going to be things which people are going to have different responses to i think the most important thing is you know are there bits that you know that you like i mean do you get something out of it and i think it's going to be less about a very linear storyline although it's interesting that we're theorizing about all the, how all this stuff fits together it may not you know it's more about the experience the mood the feelings it evokes that could be the the big impact of this um it reminds me of it was only a year or so ago where they did some poll of poll of critics as to what was the best movie of the 21st century so far and they asked lots of film critics from all around the world to give their top tens and then they smushed them together on a points basis and Mulholland Drive came top and I remember I was reading some message board I think it was a Guardian or something and people went nuts because they were either saying yes that film is amazing or I can't believe I wasted two hours of my life watching yeah. that and I think some people are going to have the same reaction to this they're not going to go with it yeah I think it's going to be a a show where they've done their best to get as many people as possible watching it at the start because I do fear that it'll whittle down casual viewers over time. Personally, I think it's a fantastic way to see Twin Peaks 25 years later. It's as bold, imaginative and exciting as I kind of hoped it would be. It is going to be a really fun ride, but I have no idea what's going to happen next. And it's again, it's got that thing going where Look, we watched it several hours ago, um, but it's been all I've been thinking about. And it's urged to want to talk about it and discuss theory. You just yeah. don't get that with other shows anymore, really. it's It kind of creates this great community atmosphere, I think, as well, where you just want to tell everyone about it. But I think 
ultimately the real test is going to be to evaluate the show as well you know the end of the 18 hours um you know i really hope it holds up i think it will but i think that it's not going to go in any kind of conformist way it'll be doing something very unpredictable and unexpected for the next few weeks i think one thing that is potentially quite divisive but could be something that is resolved not immediately but not too far into the into the future of the episodes is at the moment we've got the good cooper stuck in the black lodge and originally it was very much a show centered around cooper and his his optimism and the way he brought all of those around him together he was an iconic character who was really one of a kind on television to have someone who is effectively a, a lawman but with that kind of attitude it was an antidote to the kind of gruff grizzled maverick detective that he was maverick in an utterly utterly different way in the way that he approached everything and is it a problem to have that character effectively trapped in a place where he can't really be himself he can't be the good coop that, that we all know and that we all love and is he going to be in there that much longer is it going to be a problem if he's in is it going to be in there the whole series i can't imagine that yeah i i kind of hope that it doesn't end up being 18 hours of good coop in the lodge bad coop outside trying to evade being brought back into the black lodge I kind of want to see good Coop out in the real world. And maybe after a few episodes, you know, I I think the bad Cooper thing, that can be portrayed in different ways. Seeing what he's doing now, it's interesting because we haven't seen that before. But you kind of want him back in the lodge so the good one can come out and maybe to discuss what may have happened in the past. Mm. You know, will be a good way to talk about what the bad side of Cooper has been doing. But yeah, there's just, it would be nice to see good cooper emerge but i believe he will i don't think he's going to be trapped in there the whole season i think he's going to be out soon um it'll be weird to keep him trapped there but again you never know <laughs> no, the, the good thing you know what bad cooper is so much fun we're just going to stick with him for yeah. 18 hours we're going to leave good cooper in there. unless they run out of spray tan for the car mclaughlin <laughs> at this point in the story end of part two what are the big mysteries that we've got left hanging there's a lot of them. It's like the pilot episode originally. It's just setting up loads of different strands. So I suppose we should try and summarise what we think the main questions are. And then over the next few weeks, see if uh, if they get addressed or if more likely than not, we're completely wrong about the relevance of some of these strands. So I suppose in no particular order, I mean, we've got this issue of what came out of that glass box. Um, you know, was it the arm, a version of the arm? Was it some other being of some kind from another place? Are there more lodge spirits out in the world now? We used to know a very limited set in the original series, but the story has expanded. And I wonder if there are more things going on now with different characters. Um, and leading on from that, whether this idea of the arm evolving, whether the lodge spirits have evolved as well, there are different forms of them. I mean, it's all kind of interrelated. Yeah. What was that? charred burnt figure sitting in the jail cell you're going to obsess about that <laughs> <laughs> is it coming back every time the camera pans something i'm going to be saying oh god is he there is he there is he there 
what is it? Is it important? It could be something that is literally never referred to again. But will it come back? Is it representative of something? The giant that talks to Coop, is that the giant? Yeah, it's weird with the credits not calling him the giant. You do kind of wonder. Because the giant was always essentially good and tried to help. Although he was associated with the Black Lodge. It was almost like he was trying to help Cooper, but he could never give away too much because it was like forbidden being a member of the Black Lodge. But there's also that idea that maybe the Red Room was actually a waiting room and so it's kind of neutral and maybe that didn't have the same rules, but it was unclear what's happening. And he said he dressed differently as well. Yeah. He's not dressed in his... I think he wore like a... um, Like a bow tie. A bow tie, blue shirt. Here he was dressed... Was he dressed like in a suit or something? Yeah. It looked always more kind of tuxedo-y. I'm yeah. not sure. Because it was black and white, it was hard to yeah. It was hard to see. And also, is he from the White Lodge? And is this what is that going to become an important thing here? Yeah. You know, um, the second lodge becoming more prominent in this new season. Yeah. Has Hawk been back to Glastonbury Grove before? Because he seemed to know... He knew where to go. Where he was going. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously he knew what had happened to Cooper so he knew where to go back again maybe he knew that it was something with Cooper so he should go back but he kind of looks at the curtains mm. but then it just ends with um, with that storyline it's unclear again with these lodgers it, it all seems to be based around that at the moment um, you know are there people trying to harness the power of these lodgers just as Windermill was trying to do before I doubt it's Windermill again his, he was, his soul was annihilated by Bob before but somebody is doing something and it turns out that it's this this strange billionaire, potentially, mm. um, who's who's got something uh, to do with this glass box. You know, why is he doing this? Does he want to harness the power? Is he trying to trap Cooper? Is it like a trap to kind of get to pull Cooper out of the Black Lodge or something? Who is it that you think in the cast is going to be the billionaire? Also, just because the ultimate trope is to get some really old guy to be. Uh, a billionaire. I think it could be Richard Chamberlain, because he's one of those people who you can imagine appearing as, you know, this very senior character who has amassed his millions, quite secretive. I don't know why I think it's him. He's the but he's the one who springs to mind as this kind of elusive billionaire who's running this operation to kind of do this. Admittedly, he could just have been in heavy makeup as that charred tramp-like <laughs> dude who dissipates. I have no idea. Wow. So thank you for. Sticking with us through our marathon <laughs> takedown of parts one and two of Twin Peaks The Return. There is so much to think about. My head is still completely buzzing from all of it. And when we put this up, we can then have a couple of days mulling over it some more, but then still avoiding spoilers. We can then sit down and watch three and four just so we can have a chance to kind of space out the episodes. We thought we'd watch one and two and deliberately not watch three and four yet. Um, I think it's going to be harder as the week goes off. But uh, we'll do our best. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us to discuss any of these crazy theories, if you've got theories of your own, if you just want to tell us how much you were freaked out by that burnt dude in the jail cell like we were, um, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA. And we've got a Facebook group as well, Time for Kicks Now. So you can get in touch with us in either of those places. Or you can come by the website timeforcakesandnail.com um, where we have a blog post up along with this whole episode and we're going to put a link to that freaky owl playing card picture because I love it. It's awesome. 
Yep, and if you do like our podcast, um, please subscribe to it. Uh, it's available in the usual places. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. Um, our website itself has links to everywhere where you can get it from as well. And we'd love you to subscribe and follow us and let us know what you think about our podcast as well. One last quick shout out for a little feature we've been running via our Twitter account, which is a fun Twitter poll, which we refer to under the hashtag poll from coal where we're running little polls about various aspects of twin peaks uh, some of them serious some of them mildly irreverent uh, we've gone through a couple of them already we had one which was asking about which uh, unseen uh, twin peaks character you might like to see in the new season and i think the winner there by a very small margin was judy from fire walk with me narrowly beating diane uh, cooper's secretary I think the other two people in that were James Mum mm. and Hawke's mentioned girlfriend, Diane Shapiro, yeah. um, who didn't chart very highly. So <laughs> knowing that, I bet they're the ones who are actually going to appear. <laughs> Everyone else is wrong. Um, the second poll we did was about which previously seen character from Twin Peaks, who is not listed in the returning cast, um, would you like to see coming up in the new season? I think the choices there were Annie Blackburn... Harry Truman, um, Catherine, Catherine, Catherine yeah, and Chester Desmond from Fire Walk with Me, and the winner by an overwhelming margin was Sheriff Harry Truman. Um, and in light of what we've seen, um, it'll be really cool if he did show up in some capacity. But our most recent one, which is still online, will be running for a few more days. Um, if you do partake, please um, share it and retweet it um, if you can. Um, is about potential new Twin Peaks merchandise. And this is one of our slightly irreverent polls. But what we thought about was what fake Twin Peaks merchandise uh, would you like to see produced as something in conjunction with the show? So we thought about four different things that we'd like to see. Um, what do we have? So we have the Gordon Cole GPS sat-nav voice, <laughs> which will shout... Not really directions at you, but just occasionally shout, It's Gordon! It's Gordon Cole! <laughs> it would be a distraction, but it would be fun. Um, also, we have a Hank Jennings uh, domino set. Yeah, uh, Might be interested in it. Although they do kind of taste a bit sticky because he's <laughs> licking them all the time, which is a bit nasty. But you never know. You might like that. We also have a Just Dance Little Man from Another Place edition. So that's one of those computer games where you kind of stand in front of the screen with your controller and you have to mimic all the dancing but instead of having uh you know current pop or rock music or whatever the young people are listening to uh you can dance along to the little man from another place mm. maybe there's a bonus round where the jumping man appears with his crazy <laughs> mask on and you can mimic those moves as well i don't know what the prize is but it might be fun um and lastly what we think is probably the most ingenious one of all uh which has got no love so far uh is a Twin Peaks version of Pokemon Go, which we're referring to as Pikimon Go, <laughs> which essentially uses exactly the same mechanic uh, as the Pokemon Go game, but it involves you seeing various characters from Twin Peaks in the real world around you, and you have to capture them all in uh, Dr. Jacoby's empty coconut shells. And of course, the one you don't want to catch uh, is Bob, because he will in fact capture you in his death bag. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a way you want to end. <laughs> so, yeah, that polls up for a few more days, so please 
drop by and vote and share it if you like and we're going to be doing more of these poll from coles as the series goes on some of them serious some of them funny some of them just a bit strange <laughs> um so i think that's just about it yeah we've managed to talk an inordinate amount about part one and part two of Twin Peaks <laughs> The Return and I think we've almost certainly gone over the length of the actual episodes uh, which is a bit of a feat I for one am looking forward to editing this episode <laughs> <laughs> pretty shave off a minute here and there but yeah thank you for sticking with us my voice is going now yes <laughs> and it must be restored before we uh, put out an episode about parts three and four hopefully early next week um, in line with the TV broadcast yeah, so we're going to be getting into a pattern of doing these weekly. Once the show is down to one episode a week, I don't know how we're going to cope with only one hour of you know, Twin Peaks a week. Now we've got used to two hours. Well, I think it'd be okay because we'll only be talking about Twin Peaks for an hour in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think the plan is that they're going to go up Tuesday nights yeah. most of the time after the rebroadcast on Sky Atlantic has happened in the UK. So look out for those. And I think we need to go and have some coffee. Yeah. So thank you for listening. And please join us for the next episode of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Goodbye. Goodbye.